text for us here this evening. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Lord, we ask your blessing upon us in the form of your Holy Spirit here this evening because we, if we're honest, we have dim ears and cloudy sight when it comes to you oftentimes, Lord. Our minds continually need to be renewed and washed by the water of your word. And Lord, if we are not regularly being spurred on towards righteousness, I fear that that path of least resistance will get us. That path that our flesh so longs to chase after. And so, Lord, we ask that blessing tonight as we open up your Bible and hear from your word that we might not be caught up and distracted by other things and issues that come up either throughout the day or the week, past or future. But help us to have a laser focus, a razor sharp mind attuned to what you would have us to hear from you this evening, Lord. And Lord, may we, as we always pray, walk out of here knowing you better and more in love with you than we were when we came in. All of this we ask for your glory in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Now, I knew Hebrews 13 was coming up eventually. (laughs) Hebrews 13 is interesting in the book of Hebrews because as we've been going through the book of Hebrews systematically, it's a very complex linear argument, right? I mean, he is on the mission to go from stem to stern of theology to show you that Jesus Christ is the greatest and best of all beings, and you would be foolish, in fact sinful, to turn your back on Christ and go after anything else. Because remember, that was the big problem for the Hebrews, is these Jewish Christians living in Rome were beginning to feel the weight and the sting of persecution. And so they started turning their back on Christ and going back into Judaism. And of course, the writer of the book of Hebrews is writing to show that is 
not only unwise, but it's not going to help you eternally. It is actually damnable. If you turn your back on the thing you know to be the very best, you know salvation to lie there, you know that he's the Messiah, you acknowledge it, you've worshipped him, you've professed him as your Lord and Savior, and then something happens and things get tough, and you turn your back and go to something else, where else are you going to find salvation, beloved? Right? That's the argument of the book. But chapter 13, I mean, he jumps right in with, let brotherly love continue. Now, if you look back at the end of chapter 12, and you remember that there weren't chapter and verse breaks right when the guy originally wrote it. Right? I mean, writing, penning this down, it was a letter or maybe a sermon that was transcribed. Right? These were added, the verses and the chapters during the Reformation era, really to help us study our Bibles because before that time, the common people didn't have access to a Bible. So if you get all of a sudden handed you a Bible and you can read it for the first time, it helps to have a little bit of aid, (laughs) right? So instead of saying, hey, Raul, let's turn to that part in Isaiah, you know, where he says, comfort others, and and you who feel like the waters are upon you, let's turn there. What? (laughs) Right? Instead, if I were to say, let's turn to Isaiah 54, oh, that's a little bit easier to do, isn't it? So that's why these chapters and verses were added. But read with me, if you will, a few verses prior to this. Let's begin in verse 28 of chapter 12. Therefore, let us, the church, believers in Jesus Christ, be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. (laughs) It feels like a disconnect, doesn't it? It feels like he's calling us to this rapturous time of praise and worship with reverence and awe and amazement and gratitude towards God. And then all of a sudden we're back to let brotherly love continue. What's going on here? What possessed the writer or the preacher of the Hebrews to do this, to go this direction right here at this particular point. Now, the reason I point this out is twofold. One, because I want us to see the importance of Hebrews chapter 13, but also to avoid the way Hebrews 13 is used sometimes. Let me talk about that for just a second. Well, more than a second, maybe a minute. Oftentimes, Hebrews 13 is treated like the Proverbs. You know, you hear a sermon and they're preaching and somebody's preaching on a passage and they're going for it and all of a sudden they pull out Hebrews. Let me tell you, Hebrews chapter 13, verse four, let the marriage bed be held in honor among all. 
and undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And then move right on into whatever it is their text they're talking about, or the sermon is probably something on marriage or sexual immorality or something, right? Well, there's a context here in Hebrews 13 that doesn't exist in the book of Proverbs, right? Proverbs is boom, 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 these staccato sayings that are good, pithy, helpful. You need, it's really good if you read them regularly. It's wise, good advice for daily life, for godly life. But Hebrews 13 has a specific context in mind, and it has in mind these struggling Jewish believers. So when he changes gears, it feels like, what I want to address is the fact he's not doing that at all, but is fact, in fact continuing his argument. And so what he's doing here is he's taking what he's been saying, two things namely, one, discipline, right? Hebrews chapter 12 began with, don't despise the discipline of the Lord, right? And he culminated with that because the whole book has been really a, it's a word of discipline, right? I've said it over and over that it's the writer of the Hebrews grabbing the church by their collar and saying, what are you doing? Don't do what you're doing. Don't go that direction. That's crazy. Stop. Don't go, right? That's what he's been doing. And so when he comes to this section on discipline in the beginning of chapter 12, And then he goes on to talk about how there's two covenants, two mountains, two peoples, and the one is greater than the other. And if you leave the greater one for the inferior, then you don't have hope. I am thinking that the writer of the Hebrews here is trying to say and give us an understanding of the law in summary. What do I mean? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, and if you remember there in Matthew 22, it's, it's one of those chapters where Jesus is quizzed. He's questioned. The Pharisees are probing and trying to find a, you know, a point of weakness there within Jesus' suit of biblical armor, I guess. <laughs> and so they're probing and they're pressing and they ask Jesus at one point, what is the greatest commandment. Because you know them guys, they're all about the commandments, right? They love them, love the commandments. So which are the greatest? And Jesus, of course, you know his response well as he quotes Leviticus 19. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two greatest commandments, right? This is, I think, what the writer of Hebrews is doing here. In chapter 12, especially the end of it, he's telling us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. He's telling us that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the great covenant that was prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. The new covenant, according to Jeremiah, which this guy quotes back in chapter 8 and reiterates in chapter 9 and 10. And so he's 
showing us the great and glorious truth of worshiping God with all our heart, all our soul, our mind, and strength. That's why he ends with, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And then he moves to let brotherly love continue because he sees it, like Jesus did, as a flow from the greater law to the lesser. From the greater law, worship God with all you can to love your neighbor as yourself because you love God and are worshiping him so rightly. Following me? That's what I think the writer of Hebrews is doing here. Which I don't want to poo-poo necessarily. The taking a point of Hebrews chapter 13 and using it as a point in your sermon. I think that is right and appropriate in certain contexts. Don't misunderstand me. But what we don't want to do here is suddenly take ourselves out of the flow of the book and all of a sudden we got a chapter of Proverbs stapled on to the end of the book of Hebrews. You got me? So what is he actually saying here? What's going on? I think the reason why he has this flow of thought is because he's doing two things. One, he wants us to be pointed to Christ, right? The whole book, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He's greater than everything. And so in doing this, he's pointing us back to Christ. He's pointing us back to him as our God, him as our Savior, and him as the one who said, this great law is you shall worship God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. But then the second thing he's doing is I think so wise. Because if you think about it, You're sitting there in the church, okay? You're in the pew. You're hearing this for the very first time. And as you're hearing the words of this particular text, you begin to hear these words of rebuke, these words of correction, these words of discipline, these words of instruction and exhortation. If your mind doesn't immediately go to Ooh, I'm convicted. Let's be honest. You're people like me. Your mind is going to go to, ooh, Brian needs to hear that one. Ellen needs to hear that one. Right? That's where our minds are going to go, isn't it? And we have the tendency to think about other people and think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And so when you come to the end of a very hard, stern word like this, you can imagine the congregation who has been walking with the Lord, who has remained faithful, might have the tendency to stand up and go, yeah, that's right. You guys need to listen, right? And so rather than allowing the book to end there, with certain people to get a bravado and a cavalier attitude about their own spiritual walk. Instead, he focuses the attention back on those who have been walking with the Lord good and tells them, remember, you got to love these people. They need Jesus. I'm here and writing you this word, or I'm preaching you this sermon, and I'm going to be going, but all y'all, 
you're going to be connected together and you're going to be the ones who have to live this out. And so you can't live this out in a way of sticking out your chest and saying, yeah, we are spiritually better because we are worshiping God in this particular way that he's talking about. Instead, we need to realize we have no hope apart from Christ ourselves. I make no claim on my own spirituality. I, I, I am a wreck. Spiritually, you know, I only am what I am by the very grace and mercy of God. I have no hope apart from him. In anything. It isn't just he got me into his heaven and I can pull out of my pocket a little golden ticket that says, I'm one of Jesus's, check me out, kind of thing. No, my entire salvation sanctification, glorification, the entirety of my spiritual life is utterly caught up and consumed in the person of Jesus Christ and his work in me to make me more like him. And if that's how dependent upon I, dependent I am upon God for even the very next breath that I breathe for his glory, then how dare I look in an inferior way or look begrudgingly or look down upon another believer who's struggling, who's weak, who's trashed, who maybe has even denied Christ like Peter did. The argument at the end of the book, if it were to stop there, might lead some people to think, boy, If somebody really did turn their back and walk away, then they are absolutely done and I'm going to have nothing to do with them at all from here on out. And I think the corrective word is let brotherly love continue is be wise because Peter denied Christ once and Christ went out and sought him and brought him back. Continue loving those people. Continue, look to them, and don't look to them as the superior. Look to them as their go I, but by the grace of God. Thank you, Lord. Help me get them. Help me help them. Help me serve them. Help me love them. Help me minister to them. Lord, help me. Help me, help me, help me. And I am dependent upon God, even as I step out and I let brotherly love continue. This requires us to be vulnerable. It requires us to open ourselves to people who could really hurt us in the end. It requires us to be people who go out of our way and do the absolute most we can for individuals who, quite frankly, it might turn out they were never saved to begin with, they weren't right, and we just get burned in the end. You know what? Christ is familiar with those kind of people as well. He had one of them on his disciple team. And yet even there in the upper room as Judas is fixing to betray him, Jesus loves him and washes his feet. So we have to let brotherly love continue. I love when 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and Paul's writing to them and he says this same word, let brotherly love continue. And he goes, now I really don't need to write you this because you guys are so good at it. This is my paraphrase. 
You guys are so good at it, but I just want to say it to remind you because you guys just want to keep it up. Keep doing what you're doing. And I, I'm going to be honest, I feel like, hopefully, I'm not overstating it, that that's kind of us here. Is we, I think, do a decent job. I don't think we're great. I think we can certainly do better in this kind of area of loving one another. But I think as we hear this, that we can, it can resonate with us. Yeah, we are loving one another. We are doing what we're supposed to do here in measure, and we can certainly step out and do more. In Isaiah chapter 55, I had Joel read this for our reading, this, our, our call to worship. In verse 6, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will, apart, he will pardon abundantly. That's the message that we preach to people. We share with people who are falling or struggling, who are threatening to fall away, right? We share with them this message. Return, God will have compassion on you. But do you read the next verse there? It's so interesting. For, here's, we do this because God says his thoughts aren't our thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. What? Now we quote that all the time when we come up to some kind of mystery. Why did this paradise fire happen? Well, you know, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts and we just can't know. True. That's, that is true. Don't misunderstand me. But that's not the context of this passage, is it? The context here is that he has mercy and compassion on people who if we were to think about those people, we would never think God is going to have compassion on them. Right? That's what it's saying here. And so we go to people and we, I, I hope you understand that when we go to people and we plead with them, we tell them, come back to Christ, come to Christ, that we are not coming in a spirit again of haughtiness or arrogance, but we come broken, crying. We're, we're, so, sorry. we're so sorry for their souls, but at the same time, we know there's hope to be had and we beg them, we plead with them. No, come back to Christ. Come back to Christ. Come back to Christ. He's better than anything that you're involved with right now. And then he gives us specific ways to walk this out. Okay? First of all, this one of the specific ways that he gives us is don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. I love the idea of entertaining angels unaware. <laughs> That's kind of cool. <laughs> Over the years, we've had people come into our house and eat with us and sometimes stay with us for a short period of time and um, trying to show hospitality to strangers. Now, I have no idea if we've ever entertained an angel unaware. I seriously doubt it. But you never know. 
At the Jesus Center, we would routinely have this passage in mind because you never know who's walking through those doors. And so we had a mind of showing hospitality to everybody who came in for a meal, for clothing, for a Bible study, for just needing a place to sit and rest for a little bit. Because we wanted to be hospitable. Well, we didn't know who we were entertaining, but that's not the end in and of itself, is it? We don't do that because that might be an angel. (laughs) We don't do that because Lily might be an angel, right? We don't, that's not why we do it. It's an interesting thought, but we do it because it's right. Showing hospitality is one of the best ways we can let brotherly love continue because I'm being vulnerable by inviting you into my life. I'm being vulnerable by inviting you into my time. I'm being vulnerable by inviting you into the place where I live. I'm being vulnerable by inviting you into my family life. You know, a lot of people guard that time very diligently. There's a time and a place for guarding that time, and there's a time and a place for being open and being hospitable. And one of the ways that we can help struggling other believers is by inviting them into our home, by inviting them into our life, and showing them just who we are and see how we interact, and they can experience what we experience. Now, hospitality was a very different thing in biblical days than it is today, right? In biblical times, it was like, it was just expected that you would, you didn't stay in inns. You know, they were not great places, Frequently, you'd be robbed in those places. They were places where assaults happened regularly. And so if you could avoid it, you didn't stay in an inn. You'd go to the town circle, town square, and you'd find somebody and you could stay in their house because then you had to have the protection of the household. Now, we don't have those same kind of cultural demographics in our day and age. But we certainly, certainly know how to show hospitality. And it's something that we should do regularly with our lives. Now, number two, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Now, here's another cultural divide. Prison in this day and age, you you would be arrested and taken and you were on your own. If they didn't feed you, they didn't give you water, they didn't, and nothing. If you had any luxury, it was because somebody came along and provided it for you. Now, for Christians, that was doubly difficult, not just because you're going to go help somebody in prison and there's a cultural stigma already attached to that in that day and age. But on top of that, if they're in prison for Christ and you're going to minister to them or provide for them in prison as a Christian, then you're kind of taking your own freedom into your hands, aren't you? So there's a very real sense in if you are going to go help somebody in prison hey, maybe they'll just lock you up while you're there, conveniently located for them. Remember back in chapter 10 where there was this passage that talked about, you know, you guys are helping those who are in prison 
And, and in fact, you've gone to prison to help people, to minister to them. And when you have done that, you have come home and seen that your possessions had been plundered and your house had been vandalized. Do you remember that passage? I think he's referring back to that there when he says, you are also mistreated, or those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. What he's calling them to do is say that if that kind of persecution happens to a Christian, it happens to Christians. And if it happened to this one, it really happened to all of us. And they weren't specifically targeting that one person. They were specifically targeting Christ, and we are all members of Christ. We are all part of his body. And so as we remember those who are in prison and we go to those who are in prison and we treat them with love and compassion and grace, we need to be reminded that we go to do this because we are all one body. They are jailed as Christ. They are jailed for the sake of the gospel. And if we're going to them, we're identifying with them in gospel co-belligerence, right? Gospel cooperation, Gospel unity. We see this lots of places in scripture. And yeah, okay, Acts chapter 28. <laughs> Acts 28. Look at verse 30 with me. He, Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. The there is in prison. He is imprisoned in Rome and Paul has been there two years and has been living there in prison at his own expense, meaning he has been providing for his own food. He has been providing for his own clothing. He's been providing for whatever other luxuries that he might have as he's imprisoned there. And he welcomed all who came to him. People regularly came to visit Paul in prison to hear the gospel, to encourage him. And as we read the prison epistles... We find people being so encouraged by coming to Paul and then Paul encouraging them and then they going back to wherever they were from, whatever church they were in and ministering there and much rejoicing took place at the fact that the gospel was being proclaimed and the gospel was being lived out by Paul. It says in verse 31, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance, apart from the chains, of course. <laughs> he wasn't out about preaching the gospel. He was there, but he was able to freely speak as he was in prison. So remember those who were in prison as though in prison with them. So we don't experience that. None of us here have been imprisoned for the gospel. It sounds kind of crazy, <laughs> right? If we're honest that somebody... America would be imprisoned, but the truth is, is our culture is veering a direction that is less and less godly. And we all see it. We all know it. 
And there is going to be a time coming where the church is indeed persecuted. And that's not conspiracy theory, me, you know, doing the freak out hair aliens guy kind of thing, you know. It is, in fact, just the truth that the world hates Christ. And if the world hates Christ, then the world is going to hate his followers as well. And we stand for something. We stand for something that can't be tolerated if a secular culture is going to be what rules and what reigns. And so we are very grateful for our Christian heritage in this nation. But the fact of the matter is it is not a Christian nation The only Christian nation is the kingdom of heaven, but we're very grateful for Christ's blessing upon this nation for so, 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 so long. We pray for it to revival to break out in the land, certainly. Oh, that would be absolutely wonderful. We pray for that and pray for that and pray for that. But as we see it doesn't go that direction, this passage is going to become more and more meaningful to those of us who are attempting to follow Christ faithfully. Verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now there's a couple of things about this particular verse here. One is it kind of jumps out again. It's another verse that's like, boy, it's a little bit of a disconnect. Why would he bring this up here in the midst of this persecution passage. Well, the next verse, I think, gives us some perspective. So let me read it and then we'll come back. Keep yourself free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you and never forsake you. So, the Hebrew church in Rome is struggling because they're under persecution. They're going through a difficult time. And so some of the people have followed Christ for a time and are now beginning to turn their back on Christ. Some have wholly turned their back on Christ. Some of them are flirting with that idea of turning their back on Christ. And if they do that, what are they going to find themselves falling into when they turn their back on Christ? These two areas, I would argue. Sexual immorality and the love of money. First of all, sexual immorality. He is saying that if you are married as Christians then, and one of you is flirting with going the other way, where is that other person going to land? In the arms of another. Do you see? And he's arguing that the marriage of Christians should be held in honor by all and the marriage bed remain undefiled. No adultery, no sexual immorality. God takes that very seriously. The reason he takes it so seriously is because we find the example given to us in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for. Wives, submit to your own husbands as the church submits to Christ, right? You know that passage. But that's not an end in and of itself because the passage he goes on to talk about the love that Christ has for the church. And he says, you know, this is a great mystery I'm talking about here because I'm really not talking about marriage. I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. Marriage is to be held in honor on all because it is a living testimony of our relationship with God. It is, in, if you will, the family unit 
is a type of heaven. It's a type of the kingdom of God. It's, it's a mysterious thing, but God ordained families to be so, so that we might have an inkling of a picture of the way we relate to Christ. And so that's why it's to be held in honor among all. What he's saying is, if you abandon this marriage covenant and you fall into sexual immorality and adultery, then what you are in fact doing is denying Christ himself and turning your back on him. So, for us, who aren't being persecuted in this way, there are plenty of ways that adultery and sexual immorality can dishonor the marriage bed here just within our church. Men, there's many things that abound that seek to take your eyes, your attention, your heart, and your focus off of your wife. And I don't need to get more explicit than that, I don't believe. There are many things that will. Not just digitally, but in life there will be people, women, who will come along. We need to be very, very prayerful, very, very mindful. We need to protect our marriages both with our own actions and with our prayer life. We need to be diligently praying for our wives, diligently being praying for them, that our hearts would stay pure towards them, that we would remain absolutely in love with them. Marriage is hard. Life is hard. But living with someone in that close, intimate of a circumstance for all of your life, I'm not going to lie, is difficult. And you know what, beloved, if we have help from the Holy Spirit, then we absolutely need to avail ourselves of that. Men, guard your minds. Guard your thoughts. Aggressively. Keep anything that would get in the way of you and the love with your wife at bay. Women, pray for your husbands. Pray, 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 pray for them. Look for ways to encourage them and uplift them in the Lord. That they might be focused upon Christ and looking to him with their lives. That they may be ones who are going forward by example as they follow Christ and the family comes along with them. Women, pray for your husbands. Read your Bible and encourage him with words from the scripture. Do what you can in order to uplift him and point him back towards Christ each and every way that you possibly can. May Christ saturate your homes and your lives. And may we be people who we can say, Lord, we want our marriage to be held in honor for all of us and our marriage bed to remain undefiled, Lord. Lastly, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, there's a lengthy exposition there about money. And about the love of money. And you know that famous passage, right? The love of money is the root of all evil. Is that what it is? Nah, there you go. 
The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is. So the reason it is, is because when you love money, you replace Christ with money. Because Christ is your provision. And if you are loving money, then you are trusting money to be the provider for you rather than Christ. Now, don't misunderstand. Money is not evil in and of itself. It's the love of money. It's that passion for just money over and above Christ. Right? There's nothing wrong with earning money and using that money to glorify God and to provide for your family. Even provide a comfortable living for your family. There is nothing wrong with that. But when your mind, your focus, your attention diverts from worshiping Christ and transfers over to loving money, something happens because you begin to worship an idol. Mammon is what it's called in the New Testament and in the Old. Worshiping money, worshiping stuff, worshiping provision by another rather than by God himself. To be content is one of the traits of a Christian. In fact, in Philippians chapter 4, if you want to turn there real quick, Philippians 4, Verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord and greatly now at length that you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but, I ha- but you had no opportunity. Now, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me is a passage that's telling us we can be content in Christ no matter our station. If we're poor and we're regularly in need, or if we have abundance and God has supplied us lavishly, neither one of those in and of themselves are wrong as long as we have our contentment in Christ, not in the stuff, not in the money, not in the things. And the reason we can be content is because he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Of course, quoting Deuteronomy 31 there. Finally, verse 6. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? As we go through this text, I am not ignorant. I'm sure that something I said gave a little twinge of conviction to hopefully everybody here and myself included, honestly. These are areas that we understand we all need to grow and we all need to walk in in a greater and deeper way. But what I want us to walk out of here, not under just the weight of conviction, but with the encouragement that God is your helper. Perhaps you have fallen in one of these areas tragically. 
Perhaps you have fallen in one of these areas. Perhaps you have been one who has turned your back on Christ at some particular point in time. And now what you need is the word of the Lord to call you back into himself. He is willing and he is perfectly capable to do that. Perhaps you've fallen in a way and now that you are looking for your footing to get back on the path with the Lord. He is your helper. Don't fear what can come along and shipwreck you now. Instead, put one foot in front of the other and keep on keeping on with the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing that this church, that as a body, we're here for you. We love you. I love each and every one of you who are here at this church. And this book right here, this gives us everything that we, pertain, that we need that pertains to life and godliness. And my responsibility is to preach from this book, not as an end in of itself, but as an encouragement as the Holy Spirit comes and applies it to your life so that we all together can corporately say, great, let's keep on moving on towards the Lord, with the Lord giving him all glory and honor and praise. I am not the preacher because I am more spiritual. I'm the preacher because God has called me to be and I've been in the hospital a little bit longer than y'all. I know where the good vending machines are. I know who the nice nurse is. I know who the good doctor is. I know what you should, questions you should ask at this particular juncture. We all have been raised to life and are being formed into the image of God. And we all are moving on towards Christ's likeness. And all of us are in this place because God has called us here to this place. And we all are on this journey together. And it behooves us to come along arm in arm, wrap ourselves in love around each other and say, I know it's hard. I know you might have fallen. I know it hurts. I know it's hard. Let's do this together. Because we're all here together. We're here for Benjamin as well as for everybody else that's here. Amen. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. And when we come to a message like this, Lord, that is very, very, very practical and hits all of us in some point, in some way, shape or form, Lord, we ask first of all for your grace. We're not perfect. We don't even pretend to be. We shouldn't. We shouldn't pretend to be. We should acknowledge who we are and that we're sinners in need of a Savior, that we're people who need you more and more each and every day. And so, Lord, I pray that as we walk away from this message, we would be encouraged by the fact that your grace abounds to sinners, which all of us are who hear this. And so, Lord, we ask and pray on top of that grace that you would strengthen us with your spirit and help us to follow after you and do these things that you've called us to do. Not to earn any reward from you, but rather because we love you and because you have done so much for us. It's a response, Lord. So, Lord, take all of us as sinners who have been saved by your grace and make us a little bit more like you, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen.